With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. From Business Insider, this is Success. I'm Rich Filoni. Melinda Gates is widely considered one of the world's most powerful women. In the year 2000, she co-founded the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with her husband, Bill. Almost 20 years later, its endowment has grown to more than $50 billion. It's the largest of any private philanthropic organization. And in April, she released a new book, The Moment of Lift. Gates writes about all the unpaid work women around the world do every day. And she argues that reducing gender inequality can solve poverty, boost economies, and improve quality of life globally. Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel, recently spoke with Gates in Seattle. They talked about why she and Bill still do the dishes together every night, and how one encounter she had with a new mother in India changed the course of her work. So, Melinda, thank you so much for being here with us today. Glad to be here, Allison. I appreciate it. So, obviously, Melinda Gates, the co-founder of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, founded in 2000. You've spent billions trying to solve some of the world's toughest problems. You're an author of a new book called The Moment of Lift, which is all about empowering women and how, actually, if you lift up women, it improves the world on multiple levels, from boosting the economy, taking people out of poverty, saving children from dying, all sorts of things. Um, and you've also had three different careers. You were a high-powered Microsoft executive, uh, you are a philanthropist, and you're a full-time mother to three children. So I want to talk to you about all of that. Okay. But I think Great. maybe it would be helpful if we started um, with even your Microsoft days. Mm. So you're from Dallas, Catholic family, computer science major from Duke, master's in business. You land at a smallish company called Microsoft. And you get there, and it seems like things weren't quite what you expected, a little bit jarring when you first arrived. What did you see at Microsoft that made you think, maybe this isn't for me at first, maybe you actually want to quit? Yeah, so as you said, I came out of Duke University with both a computer science degree and a business degree. And when Microsoft made me an offer, I literally called my parents. I was back home, I was on spring break, and I said, if this company makes me an offer, I will not be able to turn it down. And when I got there, what I had imagined was true. Like, we were changing the world. We were creating products that never existed before. And I loved that part of it. And I loved being in tech. Um, the piece that surprised me a bit was just how aggressive the culture was. I knew it would be fast-paced. I knew it would be competitive. But it was just quite aggressive. And I had seen some of that for sure uh, in my undergraduate days. Um, but the fact that it was pervasive and, and often... 
Um, that just surprised me a little bit. And um, I had the thing I write about in the book is what I had to learn to do. I actually questioned for a while, do I want to stay here? About two years into my career. I love what we were doing. but And I had great friends, males and females around the company. But I finally decided instead of leaving, which was my plan, that I would try on being myself. And I decided to just be myself and see if I could still be successful. And I ended up attracting all kind of people from all over the company. And people would say to me, how did you get that male software developer who worked on systems to come work on this new application you're creating? And I said, well, maybe they just want to work in the, the environment, the culture that I've created. And I learned to be myself there and that that ended up working for me. So that is easier said than done sometimes. Mm -hmm. You've had a great mentor, it sounds like, in a woman named Patty, who helps show you that you could be mm -hmm. yourself. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think that there's pressure to conform to how your boss acts, maybe. Mm -hmm. And there have been studies that show that if you don't act the way your boss acts, they promote people who remind them of themselves. Mm -hmm. So do women need to conform to be like men? Is it always possible to be yourself and be a leader? I think it really depends on what the culture of the company is that you work for. And I think that if you find yourself under a boss who's not supportive, you know, as fast as you can move under somebody else, I think the better off you're probably going to be, unless you can work with them. I also know other women who've talked to me who work at companies now, young women who are in their early 30s who say, okay, I haven't had the most supportive boss in the environment I'm in, but if my colleagues and I get together, and not just a group of women, but men and women, to give that uh, person feedback and if they're open and they hear it from multiples of us then sometimes they'll start to change so I think honestly I think the burden is both on the corporation to change or if it's government to change and on the individual to say what's right for me and what is it that I want but it goes it goes both ways so there are two things that you talk about in your book feelings that a leader should have uh, one is empathy mm -hmm. and one is actually love one of the topics that people don't like to talk about is love. You call it uh, the greatest agent for change that there could be. Uh, and yet you never hear politicians talk about it. Um, you never hear bosses talking about it. Should we bring love into the workplace and, and into management? What do you think about those two things? Well, I talk about empathic leadership. And I believe in being compassionate to everybody around you. And so whether you talk about love explicitly or not, I think it's what you do to role model. So when you have the employee who uh, has a death in their family or has a loved one, a mother or father who's ill or a young child they're caring for, I think it's in how you respond to them as a manager or in, in reverse that shows your humanity. And people are basically, I think, looking, I think the best organizations are ones where people can show up as their full selves at home and at work, and that they don't have to hide parts of themselves. Now, it doesn't mean if you're going through something emotional at home that you want to bring all of that to work. You do have to manage your own emotions. But I think the more we let everybody be themselves, the more we will have empathic leadership. And to me, that ultimately is, when you reach out and connect with somebody over their humanity, that ultimately is love, whether you name it or not. So while we're on the subject of love, you met your husband, Bill, at work. <laughs> yes. Um, at a work dinner, from what I understand, you didn't know you would be sitting next to each other, but then you hit it off. Yeah. You get married, you get pregnant, and you shock Bill by telling him, hey, honey, I'm not going back to Microsoft. I'm going to be a full-time mom. And you say he just says, really, really? Like, he can't believe that because you've built this career and you love it so much. Um, and in the book, you write that you assumed that that's what women were supposed to do. So why did you assume that? Where did that come from? 
I don't know exactly where it came from, but I think that when I was growing up, a lot of the women in my neighborhood in Dallas, Texas, didn't work. I grew up in a very middle-income family, but most women didn't work. Now, luckily, I had a role model in my mother because my dad was an engineer working on the Apollo space missions. He would go off to work every day. She was home raising us four children. They did it together, obviously, in the evenings on a weekend. But when we, my parents could see that my dad's engineering salary wasn't going to put me and my three siblings through college, which was what they wanted. They always talked to us about being college going and that they would pay for it. They started a small real estate investment business. And my mom actually led on that business. I mean, she worked on it a lot during the day. And in the evenings on the weekends, my dad came and obviously contributed hugely. So I did have a role model of a working mom in a small business, but I didn't have a role model of a woman going off to work. And so I don't know if it's from that, um, and I didn't see that many women working, that I just assumed I would stay home and take care of the kids. And, and I think the other thing that played into it, I mean, we have to be honest, Bill is the CEO of Microsoft, right? That is a hard-charging tech industry. That was a very fast-growing company at first, um, and even still. And, you know, I kept saying to him, but somebody has to be home. If we want the values that we both believe in as a couple for the kids, somebody has to be home to instill those values. But then, as you heard, my view of that changed over time when I felt like I had created the environment where I could give my kids privacy, let them grow up to be themselves. We had the values. We had people around us who were also imparting those same values that we had. Then I felt like, okay, I, I do want to work, and uh, I will work and be working mom. And the one thing I'll say about Bill is he was incredibly supportive all along the way. Even after Jen, our oldest, was born, he would say, well, what are you going to do? You know, what else are you going to do? Because he knew that I actually enjoyed working. And uh, that was supportive to have a husband say that. Right. And not because being a full-time mom isn't a ton of work. As you and I both know, it's a ton of work. It is um, so much work. knew you needed something else in addition. Knew that I would enjoy using my talents and my brain on something else in addition. Right. I, I want to say one other thing, though. I think one thing that in society we have sort of put on women is we don't talk about how difficult it is to raise children, how much time it takes. We don't even talk about things like breastfeeding. You know, We just assume women are going to go do it. It takes time and it takes energy, right? And so we've, we, because, and I talk in the book about unpaid labor, because male economists decided what was labor and would be measured in our economy as productive work, we never looked at the unpaid labor, which predominantly women do at home. And I think it's far time we changed that and had the real conversation about this 90 minutes extra of work that women do at home in the United States. And when you add it up over their lifetime, it's seven years of work. I don't know about you, but I think you and I could probably go get a couple of graduate degrees and a PhD in seven years, right? Yeah, absolutely. And some of that's work you want to do. It's tender, it's, it's lovely, but some of it is also the mundane of doing the laundry and the dishes and, you know, the packing the lunch boxes. Right. So this idea of unpaid work is basically um, anything that you're doing that's basically not your leisure. You're doing it for your household. You're doing it for your family. Uh, in the U.S., it might be laundry. In other places, it's you know sometimes walking miles to a well to get water for your family. Um, so it's this huge problem. And actually, it was found that it would be the biggest sector of the economy if all this unpaid work counted, right? Right. It's unbelievable. And you found that even in your own home, there was some unbalance 
and responsibilities. Um, how did you and Bill look at kind of unpaid work in your own house, and how did you balance it out? Yeah. So I think, well, first of all, I think it's really important to say that our economies have been built on the back of this unpaid labor. And sometimes that unpaid labor is invisible in a certain way because we don't in the United States think about, okay, that 90 minutes of work that a woman does at home. In my own home, I mean, I'm going to be the first one to say, look, I'm incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky. I can, you know, have somebody else if I choose, uh, purchase the groceries or help with childcare. I've had amazing uh, support and help with child rearing. Um, but there are still things that we do in our home that I wanted to make sure we did as parents and that our kids participated so they would know what it was what it was like to have responsibilities. But I gave one example in the book, which is we always do the dishes together after dinner as a family. And one night I realized after you know a couple weeks in a row that I was you know I was really tired and uh, everybody had helped with the dishes and boom, gone back upstairs. But I started to realize that I was still in the kitchen in the family room a good 10, 15 minutes after everybody else. You know, just doing the last minute things that I hadn't sort of assigned out to somebody or somebody else hadn't thought to pick up. So I'm not, uh, sometimes in the moment, I just use my frustration or anger just comes out. So one night we stood up after dinner, we all did the dishes and people started to melt away, you know, like <laughs> off they go upstairs. And so hand on my hips, I'm like, nobody leaves the kitchen till I leave the kitchen. And what happens is that last 15 minutes gets divvied up really fast and people figure out what else to be done. And then five minutes later, we all go upstairs. So I think we just have to sometimes name these extra invisible things that people don't even see that we do as women. So do you still do family dishes? We still do family dishes. In fact, right now, um, uh, our youngest daughter, our two older ones are out of the house now. Our youngest daughter is actually in Peru right now. So last night was just Bill and me for dinner and we did the dishes together after dinner. Amazing. And I love the story too of um, Bill driving your children to school and the effect that that had on all the other parents at school. Can you just yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when our oldest daughter, Jen, was starting kindergarten, we both agreed the school we thought she should be in long term. It was not close to our house. It was a good drive away from our house. And I was making the argument that, gosh, there are going to be so many years of driving. Maybe we just wait and delay and put her in that school when she was a little bit older. And Bill was really quite adamant that he thought we, she should start then. And so I said, but I just, the amount of driving, you know, to and from uh, five days a week. And he said, well, I'll drive then. And I said, you'll drive. And it meant him leaving our house, going to where her school was, and then driving back past our house to Microsoft. So it was quite a commute. And so he started doing this twice a week, and um, about a few weeks into the school year, some other moms kind of sidled up to me, and they said, hey, do you see what's changing in the classroom? And I said, yeah, I'm seeing more dads kind of dropping off. They're like, yeah, we went home, and we told our husbands, if Bill Gates, who's the CEO right now, can drive his kid to school, so can you. And so I hadn't even realized that this this moment that Bill and I had at home of negotiating who was going to do what and me naming what was going to be hard and what was needed and Bill stepping up and saying, I'll do it two days a week, we inadvertently role modeled for other families something that was right. And what I will tell you is Bill and the kids cherished those moments in the car. I mean, listening to music together, the conversation over many years that they had it's a side of him that I, you know, of them and him for them, they might not have seen otherwise. It would have been a missed opportunity. It's beautiful. So I want to dig into a couple stories in the book that were really, really powerful. And one is the story of this woman, Mina. You, you decide 
that poverty is a huge problem you want to solve, you want to have, help tackle, um, because the biggest unjust thing in the world is if a parent who um, doesn't have as much money as someone else has their child suffer or potentially even die. Um, so tell me about the story of this woman, Mina. Yeah, I met Mina in northern India, and she had just given uh, birth to a beautiful little baby boy in a health facility that we had been part of supporting. And so I was at Mina's home with she and her husband and her two little boys, and she had this beautiful infant in her arms. And we were talking about her experience, which had been very positive, and uh, we'd gone through all of that. And then, so near the end, I said to her, so what are your hopes and dreams for your sons? And she just looked down for a long time, and she went very sullen after we'd had this glorious conversation. And then she finally looked up at me, and she said, the truth is, I have no hope. For my son none and she said my only hope would be is if you took him home with you and all she knew was you know I'm there as a Western woman in a pair of khaki pants and a t-shirt and she just knows that life will be better for her son and she ended up saying take both of them she thought her, their lives would be better if I took them back to the United States and it's heartbreaking to be in these situations and to see parents who are doing their absolute best, but because of their circumstances, can't feed and educate their kids. And I think that's a, something we can do something about as a world, and we should do something about it. That's unbelievable. I mean, she essentially asked you to raise her two children while holding one. Mm -hmm. um, that is the desperation that you're seeing. And she clearly loved those boys. <sighs> there, and there's so many stories of similar depth and power in your book, mm -hmm. um, and I wish that we could have time to address them all. Um, but one thing that I was really impressed by is that you know, you're, you're trying to change traditions um, or help people think about traditions that maybe shouldn't exist any longer and then introduce new ones. Mm -hmm. um, so like um, cutting was one tradition mm -hmm. that you have helped change, and then like skin-to-skin -skin contact is something that is basic, it seems like, for mothers here in the US, but not everywhere. Talk about how you're changing um, mindsets. Yeah, I mean, I think the way as society grows and learns is to take on new knowledge and then advance society. We're, we're trying to do that in the United States. I would suggest we still have quite a distance to go till we get full equality in the United States. But yes, in other cultures that we go into, we go in with partners who've been on the ground, say, 30 years working in these communities. And what we try to do is to bring new knowledge and sometimes new tools from the United States, like a vaccine they haven't had before, and then educate the community and let them decide do what they want to take on these new norms or traditions or tools because they will save their children's lives. And it's up to them in the end to decide. Skin-to-skin -skin contact, what we call kangaroo care, where you take a newborn and as soon as it's born, you put it on the mom's chest and you wrap it up in a blanket and you put it there. It is a life-saving technique and it was proven out in the developing world before it came back to the United States. So in the US, we were overusing incubators for kids. And once it got proved out in, the, in other places, we brought it back to the US and now it's become part of the standard care practice. And what we know about skin-to-skin -skin contact is the mom and the baby bond more, her milk lets down sooner, and um, it saves the baby's life, particularly like in places in northern India where you give birth and it's cold. A child you know, needs to be kept warm or they're at risk for all kinds of things like pneumonia. There is this huge issue of the growing wealth divide. 
Ray Dalio, hedge fund king, recently said that um, he thinks it's a national emergency. You have so much concentration of wealth and so many people who are increasingly having not enough and the middle class, which you were raised in, is being wiped out. What is the solution here? I mean, how, how bad can this get? I think the solution is a different taxation policy. The truth is we need to update our tax code in the United States. The wealthy in this country should be paying higher taxes than the middle class. And like higher than 70 percent? I'm not going to name a number. I'm not a tax policy expert, but I definitely think the, the high-income people should pay more tax. And you can do it in, there's lots of different ways and different forms to do it in, but then middle-class people should pay more than low income. But even in, in Washington state, we're one of the most what we call regressive tax states. And um, I think it's time around the U.S. that we looked at taxes at the national and the state level. So you're the world's biggest prob best problem solver, I would say. Mm -hmm. You're tackling problems that seem impossible. What is your strategy for problem solving? To surround yourself with experts and then to go out in the field and really do site visits and really hear from people on the ground um, what they want and how interventions will or won't change their lives. And it's only by taking the latest, greatest innovations in science and surrounding yourself with those people and understanding people's lives that I think you can event eventually create change. Great. Well, thank you so much, Melinda. It's been so fun. Thanks, Allison. That was U.S. Editor-in-Chief Allison Chantel in conversation with Melinda Gates. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Today's episode was produced by Jennifer Siegel, Amelia Kashulik, and Alyssa Pagano. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. We're working on some new episodes of This Is Success that we'll be releasing soon. Make sure you don't miss them by subscribing to the feed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. In the meantime, shoot us an email at audio at businessinsider.com. Let us know which episodes of success you've enjoyed and who you'd like to hear from in future episodes. And don't forget to give us a rating. It really helps new people find the show. Until next time. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.